Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, it's Dr. Will Cole. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers. This is the art of being well. What's up and welcome to the art of being well. I am a leading functional medicine expert. I get to consult people around the world via webcam and I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I wrote Intuitive Fasting, which is my newest book and The Inflammation Spectrum and Ketotarian. If you wanna learn more about my clinical work, the telehealth center, the books, and there's lots of free resources there for you as well. You can check it all out at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. And listeners of The Art of Being Well, I'm giving away free signed copies of my books. You can pick anyone that you want. All you have to do is head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Art of Being Well. That allows people to see the podcast, make it more visible. I really appreciate it. So every month, no matter when you're listening to this episode, we will be picking winners from all of you that leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can leave your Instagram handle in the review if you want. You can also message me on Instagram at Dr. Will Cole and say that you left a review and we'll be going through the messages and the reviews and be picking winners every month. All right, let's get to today's guest. His name is Doug Bobst. Doug Bobst is an award-winning personal trainer, author, speaker, and podcast host. Those credentials and accolades are the result of his own transformation. He is a former felon and drug addict sentenced to months in jail due to being found guilty of possession with intent to sell. He chose to use his time locked in that small cell to beat his demons and reinvent himself thanks to a combination of faith, family, and fitness. You're gonna learn so much from this amazing human being. And stay tuned through the entire conversation because at the end, I'll answer another one of your burning health questions. All right. This is Doug Bobst's Art of Being Well. Doug Bobst, thanks for being on The Art of Being Well, man. Dr. Cole, man, it's cool to, to kind of switch sides, if you will. You know, <laughs> yeah. I've interviewed you a few times on my show and it's, it's great to be on yours. I know. This is a long time coming. I'm excited to have you on the show. And I love your podcast. People need to check out all the episodes, not just mine, but I love talking to you. Let's get into your story. Your story is amazing. And what it's really going to inspire a lot of people. Me coming from a functional medicine side of things, the mental health aspect of your journey and the stigma around it, I think is very important and something I haven't covered on the show in this way. So can we go back to way back, way back in the day when you were a kid growing up, what was your childhood like? And then talk about those early days. I think you were 14 when you started using drugs yeah. and, and what that looked like for you. Yeah. And I appreciate the kind words. And you know, my podcast today is called The Adversity Advantage. So what's really interesting about that is I used adversity to my complete disadvantage growing up. And you mentioned like when I first started using drugs, like I never thought when I took that first hit off the marijuana pipe that I would end up incarcerated on felony drug charges, which is exactly what happened. 
But you know, I grew up in Baltimore. I still live. I still live within a few minutes of where I grew up. And as I look back, it just seemed to me that I was battling insecurities, trauma, pain in the most unhealthy way possible. My parents got divorced when I was five. Never had a girlfriend in high school. And was bullied and picked on and suffered all kinds of abuse and everything. And I think initially what I turned to, and you'll relate to this, is is food where I would just find myself eating copious amounts of pasta. I'd eat pizza, breakfast meats. Uh, and, and honestly, like I didn't think I was doing anything wrong because my friends were eating the same thing too. It was like what the typical kid ate. I just ate a little bit more of it. And then my friends just, it just seemed had better genetics than me because they wouldn't put weight on. And I started to gain belly fat when I was a young kid. And that led to more insecurities like what's wrong with me okay like because it's like why am i gaining weight my friends aren't and then i was just looking for a way to escape because all these insecurities and anxieties and fears had started to really stack up and it created this balloon that was just ready to pop mm-hmm. and when i was 14 a, a neighbor of mine was like hey you want to try pot and i was like yeah sure like all the cool kids were doing it i didn't see any any harm with it um although i did know that it was probably something i shouldn't be doing but I remember vividly taking that first hit off a marijuana pipe. Mm-hmm. And when I took that, that first hit, I felt this massive weight come off my back that I could finally be at peace with myself. I could finally not have to worry about what my life was going to look like, or if I was ever going to find love, or if I was ever going to find success, or if I was ever going to lose the weight, whatever it was, they were all gone. For people who are listening to this, or maybe you have a loved one that struggled with addiction, you know kind of how the story goes. I had to keep chasing that same numbing feeling. And one hit leads to two, leads to three, and then I'm smoking it every day to support my habit. And then I'm now selling a little bit on the side to support that habit. And then along those same lines, my relationships at home with both my mom and my dad and my brothers became more toxic because now I was starting to act out as a kid even more so because I'd been caught you know, doing mischievous things with, with the drug use and stuff and ended up getting kicked out of my mom's house on my 16th birthday, went to my dad's house to live with him, switched schools, barely graduated high school. And I, I still progressed in my drug use, kept smoking pot, kept meeting new people, kept creating this Rolodex of people in my life that I could get high with and feel safe and secure with. Right At the time, I was battling anxiety. I was depressed, but I honestly was just like, well, there's no way this is ever going to go away because I didn't see any hope or any bright lights in my future mm-hmm. because I just saw my trajectory getting worse and worse and worse and my insecurities grow deeper and deeper and my self-confidence get lower and lower and lower. And back then, it was cool to cut class and get high and you listen to music and you do the thing. And, and so that's what my friends and I did. And I barely graduated high school as a result of, of not attending class. And keep in mind, I was I was a kid who had, who had some aspirations. Like I wanted to do bigger things, so to speak, in a career. I wanted to be an athlete. The problem was I just had no belief in myself to be able to accomplish those things. Yeah. I have a question real fast. Yeah. Marijuana, obviously, cannabis is talked a lot in the wellness world right now. And there's a lot of exciting research. I know people with autoimmune conditions that it's a tool for them medically. And CBD obviously has no THC in it. So people get those conflated. But just this larger conversation about CBD and THC and medical marijuana or recreational use. As a functional medicine practitioner, no, there's therapeutic medical reasons for why people should be taking it for different inflammatory problems or or mental health issues. There's a place for it, but it's controlled. It's properly prescribed. It's properly monitored and regulated. It's used responsibly. What's your perspective on that? And we didn't get to it yet, but how it was a gateway to other things for you. As someone that's gone through recovery, what's your view on the normalization of cannabis? It's really funny to have these conversations now with it. Like you said, there being so much research coming out and it being legalized in so many parts of the world and that sort of thing. Because back when I was using and dealing drugs, it was much more frowned upon to get busted with pot than it is today. And I often said, like, I thought that in, in my personal opinion, not that I'm not saying that pot isn't or can't be dangerous because I think it, in certain cases, obviously it can, but I think alcohol is, is far 
worse as far as how it can destroy your life versus pot. With that said, I think it all comes back to intentionality. Like, why are you using the substance? Now, you're talking about like a clinician who's had medical experience and medical expertise and a practice saying, okay, like under my care or under this research or under these dosages, I'm going to monitor this for a condition to help manage whatever you're going through. I think that's far different than somebody saying, oh, I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling depressed. I want to fit in with my friends. I want to just do the thing because it's cool because I saw it on Instagram or I saw it on, here and there. I'm just going to get high to numb my pain. Like totally different conversation. Mm-hmm. Right. But I do also think that, that, yeah, if you look at what's happened with like Oxycontin and how that was supposed to be a, a healthy thing to help mitigate pain in some people, I think it just all comes down to the individual because there's some people that are predisposed to the addictive personality, the mm-hmm. nature of addiction. And so if you're somebody who's like in a lot of pain and not physical pain, but emotional pain, mental pain, psychological pain, and you think pot is going to cure that, I mean, I would beg to differ with you because there's many cases, including myself, where I thought that same thing. And you can only smoke so much pot before you have to turn to something else. Because again, it's not like I was enjoying the taste of marijuana. And there's many people that do. But for me, I was like, I just want to continue to numb this pain mm-hmm. as fast um, and as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And as I and I and I I used to say the pot was my gateway drug, but after looking back, I think like I had the gateway pain and gateway trauma that led mm. to that. Yeah. And so as my story continued to unfold, I barely graduated high school. Then it was like, okay, I've only gotten, I can only get so high off the pot. What can I do next? And then I started to sell more pot to actually make money because that was a new rush for me because I didn't have a girlfriend or because I never really made the sports teams and that sort of thing. I had this hole inside of me to feel wanted, to feel needed, to feel like successful. So selling drugs gave me that because my phone was always ringing. I got like a high or a rush off almost when I would have like 50 missed calls or text messages because I'd be out and people wanted to get pot. Right. And that became an addiction in itself. And then I started to experiment with things like cocaine. That's what I mean is like people like myself and many others, they're just looking for some way to escape, to feel outside of themselves because they're not comfortable with who they are. Right. And then I I turned to Coke. Go ahead. So I was going to say, I don't want to skip over that point that you made, that gateway trauma, that not everybody has it in the same way or has maybe has the same predispositions for that addictive quality where some people, many people can smoke marijuana responsibly and it's part of their life. It's not impinging their relationships or their quality of life. I still at the same time would, maybe before we get into the harder drugs that you did, is just normalization, I think that many people do because it is recreational. I agree with you on alcohol that I think that we have this a sea of people where alcohol and now marijuana is used not in, it's a spectrum. It's not as obvious and overt. They're functional, but people, I can't tell you how many consults that I have where it's like the idea of not having that glass of wine at night is viscerally very, people get very defensive about it uh, or more on the weekends or whatever it looks like. It's like they are needing it to some degree. What's your view on on that? The sort of people using that to certain degree, take the edge off, take the anxiety off or needing it to be that social lubricant in a way where they can't really socialize normally without some sort of medicating, uh, whether it be marijuana or alcohol. Well, I I think... You know, I've heard a definition of addiction, addiction described as continued use to, despite adverse consequences, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're somebody where you're having that drink every night or you're getting high with your friends recreationally in a safe manner or whatever, um, it's hard for me to actually say those words, just given yeah. my history. But it's hindering you from making certain lifestyle changes that could better your health. It's hindering you from maybe losing that extra weight that could you know, help you break free from being pre-diabetic or having diabetes or whatever the case may be, then I think it's time to maybe look at yourself in the mirror and say, okay, like maybe it's not destroying my life in a massively traumatic way. Cause that's the way that most people see it. They're like, oh, well, it's not like I'm getting a divorce or it's not like I'm losing my job, but like over time, it could potentially be contributing to your ability to not make those lifestyle changes 
mm-hmm. that could actually better your health for the long term. And so many people don't, they skip over that yeah. because of the fact that nothing dramatic is happening in their life. And with that said, if you're somebody that say your health's perfect, say you're getting your vitals checked and your, your anxiety is good, your depression's good and your relationships are phenomenal and you're growing and you're still invigorated. Like, like who am I to tell you what you should and shouldn't do? Mm-hmm. Honestly. Like I, and I, yeah. and I think that's the important point is you're right. It is a spectrum. Nothing's black and white in life, nothing. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to take it in a very individualistic way. At least that's just my own opinion and experience because we're all wired different. We all go through certain things at different points of our life that require us to to do different things. And that's just my, my opinion of it all. Yeah. One of the top things I get asked surprisingly on social media is what are my thoughts on apple cider vinegar? You all want to know about the ACV. I get it. There's a lot of information online and you want to know what's true, what's not. So my functional medicine perspective on this is that it's actually a great tool to support gut health and so many other things in the body, but you want to make sure you're getting it in a right way because ACV, while very beneficial, can be very potent and very strong and can burn our stomachs. We don't want that, right? I mean, that shouldn't be your goal there. But you can harness the amazing benefits by getting it in the right concentration. The way that I get it and the way that my patients really love it as well is the apple cider vinegar complex from Paleo Valley. You can get all the healing properties of apple cider vinegar into your daily diet without the fuss or the burn. Because ACV has been shown to support with digestion, breaking down proteins, sort of like acting like a digestive enzyme, a natural whole food-based digestive enzyme, improving your blood sugar response, supporting with satiety and cravings. So if you're struggling with blood sugar problems or hangriness, cravings, this is a great way to support blood sugar balance. And the main ingredients, acetic acid, supports in extracting nutrients from our food for use by the body. Remember, we are what we, not just what we eat, we are what we absorb. And ACV can be a helpful tool here. All right. All you have to do is head on over to paleovalley.com slash Dr. Will. That's P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com slash D-R-W-I-L-L, paleovalley.com slash Dr. Will for 15% off your first order. You all are going to love this. People age at different speeds, and the date on your license honestly may not represent your inner biological age at all. You would be surprised. If you're looking for ways to extend your health span and slow down the aging process, the keys to health and longevity run in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to improve your metabolism, reduce stress, improve your sleep and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, your DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you are optimized and where you are not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise for your body, right nutrition for your body, and supplementation for your body. What I love about this as well, and what I recommend is for you to add what they call inner age 2.0. You are going to be shocked by this. You can add this to any plan for definitive calculation of your true biological age to see how you're aging from the inside out and screenshot the results if you want to and send it on over to me on Instagram. I'd be very interested to see this. It's very interesting. No pressure there. <laughs> you can keep your health information private if you want. For a limited time, get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash art of being well. That's insidetracker.com forward slash art of being well. Or you can use code Will Cole at checkout to get that 20% off. Hello, everyone. I'm Rod, the internet's coworker, and I'm very excited for you to listen to my podcast, Millennial Made. Listen to me and my guests on your commute to work before you have to interact with your 23-year-old coworker or 16-year-old nephew as I translate the millennial experience, discuss internet culture, recap current events, and throw us back to our MySpace era with some nostalgia. Catch me right here on Dear Media or also on YouTube to watch as well. When did it get to 
the opiates and cocaine and and then I think Cinco de Mayo, right? 2008, something pivotal happened then. So take, take me to that time in your life. Yeah. So I started to sell a lot more pot shortly after I graduated high school, which I was about you know, like 17, 18 years old. And then as you sell drugs and you start meeting other people doing more drugs, you you run into people who are doing harder drugs and you almost like grad it's like you graduate like classes in school you graduate like drug classes you're not mm. i'm not aligned anymore or feeling safe with the people just smoking pot that aren't doing coke like i now have to start hanging out with wow. people that are doing coke to feel secure because if the people that were just smoking pot but weren't cool with me doing coke knew i was doing coke You'd feel out of place. I'd feel out of place. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I got a little, Interesting. yeah. So I got a little bit of Coke from a guy that I was picking up a bunch of pot from. And I remember just in the car with a couple of my buddies feeling like scared to pull it out. And I just remember being like, you know, I got this Coke and I ended up cutting it out and breaking a lineup and, and snorting it with my friends in the car and they were okay with it. And then that led to more Coke doing it every day up up until the point where I was snorting an eight ball of Coke a day. And the problem with me and Coke is somebody trying to snort Coke on a regular basis and the anxiety that I had go about, go about as well together as somebody trying to lose weight and, lose, and, eat, and eat pizza. It doesn't work. And so my anxiety and everything started to really, really take over me. And I started getting massive panic attacks. And that's what was really crippling for me at the time because what would happen is I would get high on on coke or get high on pot and I wouldn't be able to function. I didn't know what was going on. I mean, one night my my face was numb, my heart was racing, I was having all these pains and feeling completely out of sorts. I was overweight and I was like maybe I'm having a heart attack. End up going to the emergency room, walking into the emergency room and screaming help, 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 I'm dying. And to make a long story short, I was having a panic attack. You know, I wasn't dying and they were just pretty much like, you got to get your life together. And I could have made that choice then to change my friends, change my habits, change my behaviors. But I was so far down the addiction cycle that it's yeah. really hard to just say, oh, just stop. I'm just going to stop. Right. It's not Easier that simple. Said than done. Yeah. And so how I got into the Oxycontin was it, it got so bad with the anxiety and I would have this book. Talk about shame and stigma. I had this book on like how to how to stop having a panic attack or what to do because nobody talked about this back in 2007, 2008. No one was mm-hmm. talking about panic attacks. Yeah. And I would get a panic attack when I would smoke pot or get high and I'd have my friends would have to drive my car and I'd be sitting there reading my book trying to figure out how to calm down. And I was like, man, like I'd gotten so addicted to my friend group that I was like I can't stop doing these drugs and leave them. So one day, mm. one of my friends offered me a five milligram Percocet. And the same monkey that came off my back when I started smoking pot came off my back when I did that Percocet because now I could get high again without having a panic attack. Mm. And I didn't realize how, how addictive, not just how addictive these painkillers were. I mean, granted, I knew I wasn't you know, eating kale or spinach, but <laughs> how fast you get addicted to these pills. And five yeah. milligrams led to 10, led to 20, all the way up until I was snorting three, 400 milligrams of Oxycontin every single day, mm. wow. uh, spending hundreds of dollars a day. Half my left nostril was missing. It got really, really bad. What? I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. And, and everything came to a head. Like you mentioned, Cinco de Mayo, 2008. I was riding around with a few of my friends to go make a drug deal. I had a half a pound of pot in my trunk, a couple thousand dollars in cash. And a cop was running radar. And I thought it would be a brilliant idea to flash my high beams at the police officer because to hide the fact <laughs> that I had a busted headlight. I was like, oh, this will be good. I'll, hey, I'll, I'll. In the moment, yeah. seemed right. <laughs> in the moment, seemed right. Yeah. And then I get pulled over. One thing leads to the next. Pulls me out of the car. I'm in handcuffs. He searches the car and finds everything. And I'm sitting in the back of this cop car. And I don't know if anybody listening to this or has, or maybe somebody that you know has made like just bad decision after bad decision after bad decision in their life. And all of a sudden something really bad happens where I was just sitting there thinking, how did this all happen? That everything came to a head. How did the kid who just wanted to be loved? How did the kid who just wanted to fit in? How did the kid who just wanted to be good at sports or be successful, whatever it was, how is this kid now in the back of a police officer's car facing mm. felony drug charges? Yeah. 
And I end up getting arrested, charged with, with a felony, which was uh, possession with the intent to distribute marijuana and um, ended up getting sentenced in September of 2008. And the judge, he threw the, in my mind in, in that day, he threw the book at me, but it was actually a blessing in what he did for me. He sentenced me to five years, which was the full sentence, but suspended everything but 90 days. And I'm 21 years old or 20 years old at the time of sentencing. Wow. And uh, meaning, so he suspended everything but 90 days, meaning if I had messed up, failed a drug test, missed probation, like anything to break the code, the codes of parole and probation, I I could potentially go back and do the full five years. Give me five years probation, 200 hours community service, all kinds of fines and drug classes. But he looked at me, he's like, Doug, you're young, you're 20 years old. This felony conviction is going to haunt you the rest of your life. If you complete everything without messing up, no missed probation appointments, no failed drug tests, none of that, I'll take the conviction off your record at the end of the five years. And at that point, like I didn't think I was gonna live to see 25. So none of that mattered. I was like, you call that a break? You just sentenced me to, to jail. I'm going to jail. Where the story gets really interesting, and then I'll kind of let you pick up, is I report to jail a week after my 21st birthday. It was October 21st, 2008. I was crying. I was incredibly scared. I was fearful of what was going to happen. Like All the stuff you imagine or fears of what goes on in jail was for sure going through my mind. And then on top of all of that, I had this horrific opiate addiction to kick. Right. But what's really crazy is I cried when I walked into the gates of the detention center because I didn't want to go in. And when I left, I cried because I didn't want to leave. Mm. <laughs> Powerful. So let's talk about this, this paradigm shift, this metamorphosis that happened while you were in prison. It kind of I'm assuming begins with detoxing off of the drugs. What was the detox like through the, those early days in prison? So detoxing off Oxycontin, as I describe it to people, was like having the, the worst case of the flu for two to three weeks straight. Uncontrollable bowel movements, uncontrollable vomiting, sleepless, night, sleepless nights, tons of pain, just anxiety, depression, you're emotionally unstable. Mm-hmm. The worst feeling for me in that moment was you feel like you're trying to crawl out of your own skin. You're just so anxious and just so like bound up with like uncertainty. And it's just, it's, 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 it's crazy to, to the way to describe it. But as I look back, it was like the old me leaving my body so that a newer version of me could have been rebuilt. And I didn't see it at that time. But as I look back, that's definitely, I think what was happening. Yeah. And, and my soon to be cellmate just happened to be sitting there playing Scrabble. And he just looked at me and he, and he took interest in me because he could just tell that I was struggling. I was overweight. My shoulders are rounded forward. I talked very softly and he was like, what are you doing in here? And I, sh- and I shared a little bit about like why I was in there as far as what I got arrested for and that sort of thing. And he just said, you're going to start working out with me when you get through your detox. And I was like, yeah, right, man. Like, there's no way. Like at the time I could have been a model for Pillsbury. Like there's no way I'm exercising <laughs> in, a, in, a, in jail in front of a bunch of grown men. It's not happening. <laughs> and then- Is that a job, is that a job role? Pillsbury <laughs> role? <laughs> well, I just want to get, I mean, because what I wanted to, to tell people is I wasn't just overweight. Like yeah. I was fat and not, I mean, I was just full of body fat. Yeah. So you- the furthest thing you thought you'd be able to do is, is work out and get healthy. So how long before you took him up on the offer? It was, I mean, it was definitely, it was after my detox, which lasted three, like at least it was like two to three weeks in there. And then I, I still didn't really conform. And I had seen him work out and he was like a more jacked version of Brad Pitt from Fight Club is how I like to describe him because he was <laughs> so jacked. He was doing like you know, thousands of push-ups, running all kinds of laps, pull-ups, like you name it. He was doing stuff with like water bags. It was just super inspirational. What were people in, uh, what type of prison were you in? Were, like what were the other people in the prison in for? Was similar charges or? Yeah, it was similar charges where I was in a detention center. It wasn't like a state prison. Like you had to mm-hmm. get, be convicted and sentenced to over a certain amount of time to go to state prison. And, and a lot of people that were that were in there with me were awaiting to go to trial or awaiting to go to court or awaiting sentencing. So they hadn't gotten sentenced yet. So it was just okay. a variety of different of different crimes that people were in there for. I remember 
my cellmate, what, what changed things for me was a conversation I had with my cellmate where he was like, ask me more in depth about my story. And was like, so like, why are you in here? And I just started blaming my parents for the divorce. I started blaming people for bullying me and started blaming all types of the, all types of things in my life. And like the PG version of it was, he was just, he just said to me, he's like, quit being a victim. He was like, you chose mm. to respond the way you did. He's like, there's plenty of people that went through the situations that you went through that aren't in jail. He's like, you have two choices. You can either be a man and know that you got yourself here and it's up to you to get yourself out. Or you can go be a little victim and go cry in the corner and say, well, was me and blame people for your problems and be pessimistic. Mm -hmm. And he's like, most people yeah. will do that. Yeah. And I felt empowered and I felt like, mm -hmm. I was like man, he's right. Cause up until that point, clearly I hadn't, I figured out how to live life. I had 21 jobs. At yeah. the time I was 21. I was a convicted felon. I damaged many of my, my relationships in my life. I was overweight. I was smoking cigarettes. So Clearly, I knew I at that point, like if I was going to make a change, it had to be right there. And then do you feel like that tough love that your cellmate gave you? Was that the first time you had tough love in that way? Or do you feel like it was it, you couldn't have received it until that point? I don't think I was. I think there was a few things. I don't think I was ready to receive it until that point. I also think he had no skin in the game. Like I think it's different yeah. when it's your parent or it's your spouse or it's your kid or somebody who is like near and dear to you when they're. <laughs> when they're telling you something like that, because you have a deeper level of emotional attachment to them that you're stuck in the emotional side of it and you can't get out of into logic because you're so kind of triggered, I guess. Mm -hmm. Whereas somebody like that, I hadn't really developed an emotional bond with him. Yeah. And he was kind of just telling me how it was. And he had what I wanted. I mean, it's, it's funny to say that as somebody who was in jail, but I always wanted like big arms and a six pack as a kid. And I had this guy that, had agreed to train me in there every single day that I was like, Oh, maybe I'll listen to this guy. And then I was like, all right, well, maybe I'll just decide to try it, which was honestly like, that's the biggest fear for most people is getting comfortable, being uncomfortable, right? Is actually just doing the thing and taking the first step. My biggest fear was how I was going to look in front of other people when I exercised because I knew that I was out of shape. And I remember him being like, all right, Doug, let's do a push up," and then collapse. Couldn't do one for my feet. And he's like, all right, let's try it from your knees. I collapsed. And I remember just sitting there being like, why can't I do a push up?" He's like, because you're fat. And I'm like, huh? He's like, I'm not sugar. He's like, I'm not going to sugarcoat. He's like, you have tons of body fat. You have a weak core. You can't hold yourself up to do a push up because your core is collapsed. And he's like, and that's why you're not able to do a push up. And I hated being called fat. I hated that word. There was something about that word that just really... Yeah. What's well, so charged in our culture? Right. And I swore I'd never be called that again. And with his motivation and encouragement, training me in there every single day, we, we set some goals along the way too, to do a set of 10 pushups and run a mile. One pushup led to two, led to three, and all the way up until I was able to do that set of 10 pushups and run that mile. And I felt like for the first time in my life, I was ready to make that change. I was ready to make that transition and, and really turn my life around. Mm -hmm. And I have a workout plan that he gave me before I left. Cause I cried. I was like, what am I going to do without you? Like, how am I going to repay you? And he said, don't mess up and just pay it forward. He gave me the workout mm. plan that I still have framed <laughs> in my place. So I never forget where I came from and got out, lost a bunch of weight and then became a trainer to help other people um, use fitness to change their lives. And the story continued, continued and, and continues to unfold after that. Do you keep in touch with your cellmate? I mean, do you know where he's at today? Uh, we we did off and on for for a little while. And we actually worked out together um, outside of jail where I was actually doing his workout with him and not just the novice workout that he gave me in there. And but we've kind of lost touch through the years. I mean, just different things have gone yeah. on. And But I'll never forget what he did for me and how much he helped me. I mean, my first book is dedicated to him. And um, Does he know what you do today? Does he oh, know yeah. that... Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. One of the best things you can do to improve your health is to get at least seven hours of quality sleep every night. I know, I know. It's hard to get that much sleep. Believe me, I get it. Your mind keeps you awake. You can't get comfortable. You wake up early and can't fall asleep again. I mean, I see this all day long when I'm consulting patients online. Trouble falling asleep and trouble staying asleep or both. But listen, it's super important because your body heals itself when you sleep. Would you like to know an easy way you can get 
great quality sleep every night? Here's my hot tip. Make sure you're getting enough magnesium. Believe it or not, around 75% of people don't have enough of magnesium in their body, which helps explain why so many people have sleep problems. There are actually seven unique forms of magnesium, and you must get all of them if you want to experience its calming, sleep-enhancing effects. That's why I love Magnesium Breakthrough by BioOptimizers. All you have to do is simply take two capsules before you go to bed, and you'll be amazed at how much better you sleep and how much more rested you feel when you wake up. For an exclusive offer for the Art of Being Well listeners, go to magbreakthrough.com slash willcole to save up to 42%. Again, you can save up to 42% on Magnesium Breakthrough when you go to magbreakthrough.com slash willcole. This episode is brought to you by Monk Pack. Monk Pack offers low-sugar, keto-friendly bars, which are plant-based, gluten-free, and non-GMO. They're the perfect snack for anyone who is trying to eat better or cut back on sugar and carbs without sacrificing taste. Monk Pack Keto Granola Bars and Nut and Seed Bars contains one gram of sugar or less, two to three grams of net carbs, and each bar contains 150 calories or less. Honestly, I love all of their flavors. They have sea salt, dark chocolate, coconut, cocoa chip, caramel sea salt, so freaking good. They're perfect for a quick breakfast, a snack between Zoom calls, video calls, or as a guilt-free decadent dessert. And personally, we have at our house what's called anti-snacks. And they're my wife's snack drawer of healthy snacks. And when my nieces and nephews come over, they know anti-snacks <laughs> and Uncle Will snacks. And Monk Pack is a hit in the Cole household, I have to say. Get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and enter code WillCole at checkout. To get started, just go to monkpack.com. That's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com and select any product you want. Then enter the code WillCole, all one word, at checkout to save 20% off your first purchase. Monk Pack is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. But you're honestly going to love it. I promise. So you talk about faith, family, and fitness. So you, you, you get out and, and you start really empowering other people. Right. You become a trainer. You, you are getting other people healthier. But you also talk about these other aspects of it too, with the faith specifically. Tell me about those aspects that you feel like are major components to your health journey or your wellness journey. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it, I don't think you need to have like a religious background to have faith. I think you can, obviously. I mean, ideally, I mean, that's what, what, what many people attach it to. But for me, it's like the, they're the three, they're three of the cornerstones I live by faith for me, faith in God, faith in myself, like believing in myself, mm -hmm. faith in other people, helping other people believe in themselves right. and believing that everywhere I'm going is leading me to something brighter. And then family, not necessarily blood, like who you surround yourself with, who you surrounding yourself with people that, that love support and, um, challenge you unconditionally to be your best. And then fitness, obviously doing what you need to do to stay mentally, physically, and spiritually fit. And I had like, after I got out of jail, I, I easily developed, not easily, but I quickly, I guess, more quickly developed the family and fitness part where I changed my friends, started to surround myself with different people that were in the health and fitness space, started to, you know, join different networking groups or go to conferences and, and obviously kept working out. But the faith thing was hard. And, and the faith thing came honestly, as I hit not another rock bottom, but I hit another moment in my life where I had to make a shift where I had reached this pinnacle in my fitness physique, where I was 5% body fat. I was super fit competing, trying or trying to training to compete, excuse me, in a men's physique competition, because I thought that's what my life would, that's, I thought, that's what I thought would fulfill me long-term was being ripped, having big arms, making money, like all those things. And eventually I just burned mm -hmm. out and I hit a wall where I was still so caught up in the old me where I was, I hadn't forgiven myself or I hadn't forgiven other people in my life or my relationship with my parents was still broken and all these other things that I was holding on to that some people in my life were like, you need to get a relationship with God. You need to have something mm -hmm. else. 
It's not just about Doug Bobst. And one day I decided to call a client of mine who had been one of the guys nudging me to give this Christian thing a shot. I was like, I think I'm ready to give this Jesus thing a try. And I remember when, when I said those words to him, it, it was almost like he had just won the lottery. That's how he, I was like, what's wrong with this guy? Because <laughs> mind you, I grew up old school religious where I knew if you're good, you went to heaven. If you're bad, you go to hell. And I was on the highway to hell. So I turned my back on a lot of that stuff for much of my life. I went into his office, prayed this prayer, and I started crying. And I felt that monkey come off my back again. And I called my mom for the first time and apologized. And I learned that I might not have been proud for all of all the decisions that I made, but God was because he used them not only to help me become a better version of myself, but for me to help other people make a difference in their lives. And that's what it's all, that's what it's all about for me. It's about the relationship and knowing that part of me died in jail. Like I literally believe that I have somebody else's memories inside of me when I'm telling the wow. story. And then a new, newer version of me was built to be able to do what I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. And that, that took time and it took a lot of faith. It took a lot of falling. It took a lot of stumbling. It took a lot of just continuing to see light mm -hmm. even when I should. Yeah. Do you feel, and I know this is a personal question, but I know you enough to know yeah. you're an open book and I can ask this without offending you. Yeah. But what does sobriety look like for you? I mean, for some people it's like, yeah, I drink some, some people it's no sobriety is sobriety. And that's, full, but what's, as somebody that's gone through recovery, the way that you have, um, what's your perspective on that? I think recovery is very individual, right? Like, I think it, it's what works for you. Like I, I don't think, you know, abstinence might not be the best path for every single person. Again, it all comes back to what's your life look like. If you're somebody that, you know, wants to go and, and do other things and, but it's your, your life's continuing to fall apart as a result of it. Like then maybe it's time to take a look at it. I mean, which obviously like, which happens with a lot of people. So I would never advise anyone to, to, to do that. I mean, I can only speak from my own personal experience where I think we, we, we put people in boxes and you can't, not everybody fits in the same box and there's different paths. Like if you want to go to AA or NA and that works for you, cool. Like I didn't do that. Okay. Like that wasn't my path. Okay. If you want to be somebody that goes to Christian support groups and that's your path, cool. Like that works for you. If you want to like incorporate different holistic tools in your life and you're okay doing things socially, like, and that works for you, cool. Like, but you just have to like learn mm -hmm. what, what works for you. And I think so many people, they see one person doing something right. and they're like, oh, I'm just going to do that. Or I'm going to try that when we're all different mm -hmm. and you really have to just trust yourself you know, never be afraid to reach out and seek the help of somebody who's like a licensed professional to, to like walk along this journey with you. Because, you know, I just had, I had somebody, I had Dr. David Rabin on my show. I don't know if you're familiar with, with him. Yeah. We talked about plant medicine we talked about ayahuasca and we talked about like all these different, I mean, I think, I think we talked about what was it was plant medicine and how that's like a, a thing that's now more normalized. Yeah. Like there's some people that that could be a very powerful tool for. It's not for everybody, but it can certainly help so many. So I think, this, the short answer is the way I feel. It's just like how I feel about everything. It's very individualistic. Mm -hmm. Got it. There's no one path approach. Healthy living takes effort and is more important than ever. Change is hard, but existing habits are extremely powerful. This is where the new wellness brand Better and Better comes in. They embed better health and wellness into our existing habits and routines. With science-backed two-in-one natural vegan toothpaste, Better and Better's toothpaste is formulated to the strictest clean ingredient standards with safe, gentle, vegan, natural, and organic ingredients you'll recognize. They've removed all of the bad stuff. No sodium lauryl sulfate, no parabens, no GMOs, no gluten, no harsh abrasives, no artificial colors, flavors, or preservatives, and infused a dose of vitamins that you need. Simply by brushing your teeth, this is very innovative and already good habit you're doing hopefully twice a day for two minutes. With Better and Better's Energy Toothpaste, you get a micro dose of vitamins, specifically vitamin B12 and vitamin D3, two of the most necessary and lacking vitamins for most people. There's no swallowing of pills, no new habits to create, and no extra costs. Win-win. 
Right now, you can try Better and Better's vitamin-infused toothpaste and any other natural oral care products and save with this exclusive offer for the Art of Being Well listeners. Just use code WILLCOLE at checkout for 20% off your first purchase. Visit betterandbetter.com. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-A-N-D, B-E-T-T-E-R, betterandbetter.com. Use code WILLCOLE. Check out for the 20% off. So people that obviously they can't see you, they're just listening to the podcast right now. You're super fit. You're a trainer. You like really um, got very healthy. How much weight did you actually lose? What did that health transformation, health tra- transformation look like on a physical level? Yeah. So if you look at my, me before I started working out, some of the things that you would see is I was like roughly like 40% body fat. Um, I was wearing, always wearing like Husky clothes. I ate cheesesteaks, pizza, you name it for, for meals, didn't exercise. Obviously I, I, I spoke on the drug use. I was also, also smoking a lot of cigarettes, packed a pack and a half of cigarettes every day. And then now I'm probably, I don't know, maybe 10% body fat, maybe 12% body fat and work out four to six days a week, depending on my schedule. I, I, I try to stay consistent with that more for the mental and emotional aspect than anything else. Eat fairly clean, mostly whole foods, like 80% of the time. And, and I've also incorporated other things into my life. I, I mentioned faith and you know, I, try to, I try to incorporate meditation when I have the discipline to do it, breath work I've gotten into, hot and cold therapies, and just different modalities to incorporate into my health. But you know, I know we were talking about this before we recorded, and I wanted to make sure we kind of covered this where it wasn't an easy transformation. Yeah. Like I think there's so many people that you tell them when they're in a, a really dark spot, you're like, oh, well, just go out and and run two miles every yeah. day or just go paleo or go vegan or go keto. It's not that simple. Right. I was very lucky to be able to make the transformation in the way that I right. did because it taught me the importance of taking small steps and looking at the bigger picture. Like if you had told me in jail, hey, Doug, just get down and do a set of 10 push-ups and just do that every day, I would have failed miserably over and over again. I mean, you just heard me describe how I couldn't even do a push-up for my knees. So the fact that I started with just being able to... like The first thing we actually worked on was me being able to hold my body weight up before I did any push-ups. Then it was a push-up from your knees. Then it was a push-up from your feet. It was just a slow progression, right? Where over time, it built the confidence that I needed inside myself. And I had this emotional connection that I was like, oh... Do two push-ups for my knees. I feel great. Let me do more. Three push-ups for my knees. And then that you just start stacking these small wins. Over time, like I said, I was able to do that set of 10 push-ups, but it was over the course of like a couple months. It wasn't like it just happened overnight. And then even through after that, it was staying on a consistent workout plan, doing stuff with my body weight, slowly uh, cutting out other foods in my plan, not just because of the the health aspect, like the physical health, but because of how I wanted to start feeling mentally and emotionally as well. And, and, it, and it took a long time to lose the weight. It took, I mean, maybe know, 10 months or something like that to lose 50 pounds, which is a maybe nine months. I forget the exact, but it wasn't like I lost 50 pounds in a month mm-hmm. or in two weeks. Yeah. It was a lot of small wins adding up over a longer period of time. Do you, was it different working out in prison versus out, meaning that the structure, you didn't really have much other to, thing to do versus getting out. You have your life, you have your distractions, you have your busyness that can happen. Was that, and you mentioned being afraid of, of not having your cellmate, not having that structure, that routine that you had in prison. What was that like? Was it difficult? Yeah, it was, it was, it was difficult at first because I, I didn't have my accountability partner. Right. I didn't have the person who, because before up until that point, I knew that when Doug did life by himself, he failed miserably. And it, the only thing that changed was having my cellmate. Right. So I remember when I got out, I started to make excuses where I had written my cellmate and I was like, it's cold. Cause I got out the day after Christmas and it was, it was winter time here in Maryland. And I was like, I don't have any, uh, I was like, it's cold. It's too cold here. I can't run. And he was like, get out and buy some sweatpants, like quit being a wuss or something like that. And I was like, and so off to the store, I went to buy sweatpants because in, in jail, yeah, all we did was we worked out with our body weights, a lot of push-ups, a lot of dips, a lot of squats, a lot of ab stuff. We would like fill up trash bags with water and do curls and do like boxing work. But the confidence that I was that 
I built through doing all that stuff actually gave me the confidence that when I got out to join a gym, which I'd never done because I was so terrified of walking through the doors. I think most people, they're not afraid of exercising in the gym. I think they're afraid of what people think of having people look at them. And what, what I've realized is most people don't care what you're doing. Like we're all in it for the yeah. same reason. We're all in it. It's not like I'm looking at somebody who just walks in the gym and like, man, like look at how out of shape that person is. I'm looking at them and being like, man, good for you. Like, good for yeah. you. I know how hard it is. I know how much of a struggle it is. So if you're listening to this, just know that like most people aren't shaming you for coming in the gym and the way you look, they're not. Yeah. Most people are cheering you on. And that's the beautiful thing about the fitness space in the gym. That's why I tell people if they're looking to change their friends, change their environment, change your energy, get into a gym. It's not like the rest of the world. There's a lot of negativity in the world and negativity breeds negativity. So people are used to being judged. They're used to being shamed. They're used to being like picked on for certain things. But when you're in the gym, totally different situation. People are in there to better themselves. I love that. So for people that are at that point in their life where they're just feeling like there's a lot of negativity in their life and they're wanting to amalgamate some of that, transform some of that, what are some first steps that you would recommend people to do? Well, I think the the first thing, I always come back to awareness because I think it's so important. I think a lot of us are just walking around in the, in the dark and we don't really, we're not really paying attention because you can't change what you don't see, right? So yeah. if you're if you're experiencing a lot of negativity in your life, whether it's relationships or something's going on in your job or even your health, like start to take note of like, like what's going on? How are you feeling? And then you can start to make some different shifts. And I invite people to make small changes. Like if you're somebody who maybe the negativity in your life right now is you, you're 30, 40, 50 pounds heavier than you'd like to be and you haven't moved your body in 10 years, don't go out and run a 5K tomorrow. Like maybe the goal is to put your shoes on and go for a five minute walk, right? Because it'll do two things. Number one, if you're somebody who hasn't moved your body, you know, like that in a long time, you're going to feel better after walking, even for just five minutes. Mm-hmm. And not just for the phys- physical benefits you'll get, but from the emotional being like, wow, I'm so proud of myself for actually finally doing the thing that I know I should have been doing for years. And then you start to build off of that. Right. And then, like, you start to do walk five minutes, two days a week, three days a week, four days a week, and then it's seven, 10. And you're looking back like three months from now and you're like, wow, how was I able to, to, to run a mile? But started with getting out and walking for five minutes. And then, when it comes to like your environment, which is something that I talk about a lot, like, you don't want to try and just cut out all your friends at once. I think it's like, well, what can you add into your life? So if you're just around negative people all the time, maybe it's like you join like an, an online networking group or you listen to a, po- a couple podcasts regularly because that can be like your new inner circle too. I feel like so many people now, they feel connected to some of these podcasts because they listen to them on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Or uh, I mean, maybe you end up being somebody that just says, you know, I'm going to start going. You're at a point where you're, you're feeling comfortable enough to go inside of a gym and you spend more time there. And then slowly what happens, at least it happened with me, is you start to build these new healthier relationships with other people that you meet. And those other people that are bringing you down in your life just slowly start to fall by the wayside. Great advice. Doug, man, I could talk to you all day long. I appreciate you <laughs> telling, shutting your, sharing your story, shedding so much light on this. It's important. It's important. I know you're going to inspire so many people. Thanks, man. Yeah, appreciate you having me on. I mean, this is a topic I love talking about because there's there's a lot of people struggling, you know, uh, with with their mental health. There's a lot of people that are struggling with addiction. There's a lot of people like just struggling to make changes in their health in general. And and hopefully, my story or even some of my advice that I share can be a, a beacon of light for people to to take that step and, and make a change in their life. Yeah, I don't doubt that at all. Thanks, man. You got it. At the end of every episode, I'll be answering a question from one of you guys. Nothing is off limits. Ask me anything. And you can send your questions over to me on Instagram or Facebook. As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies, wellness trends, and ways to approach overall mental, emotional, and physical health and well-being. Thanks for those. And I'm looking forward to seeing what else is on your mind. Now it's time for an Ask Me Anything. Today's question is from Gavin. Gavin asks, I've heard people in the wellness space talk about resistant starch. What are resistant starches exactly? And are they beneficial? 
All right, so resistant starches are a type of fiber, if you will, found in different foods. And yes, there's a lot of research around it being beneficial. Uh, so let's go through it. There are different types of resistant starches, four different types to be exact. Type one is found in things like grains, seeds, legumes like beans, and resists digestion because it's bound within the fibrous cell walls. Type two of resistant starch is found in some starchy foods, including raw potatoes and green unripe bananas and plantains. Type three is formed when certain starchy foods, including potatoes and rice, are cooked and then cooled. The cooling turns some of the digestible starches into resistant starches via something called retrogradation. And then type four is man-made and formed via a chemical process. So the ones that I work on with patients and implementing and integrating into their life, into their food plans, are the first three types, obviously, right? And my favorite sources are typically going to be potatoes, some gluten-free grains for people who tolerate them, seeds, legumes for people who tolerate those, plantains, unripe bananas. Uh, these are all great sources of resistant starches. So you can either get those in the whole food form or you can actually get the starches. You can get potato starch or plantain starches. Bob's Red Mill is one brand that comes to mind that we recommend to some patients. But whole foods with your within your meals is usually best. Now, how does this work? I mean, what's the benefit of these? So resistant starches are basically food for your gut microbiome, the gut bacteria within the microbiome. So your bacteria love to eat these resistant starches. These are fermentable fibers. And the main reason why resistant starch works is that it functions like this soluble fermentable fiber. It goes through your stomach and small intestines undigested. It's resistant, right? Eventually reaching your colon where it feeds your friendly microbiome, your microbiome metropolis, your gut garden. The bacteria in your intestine outnumber the body cells 10 to 1. You are in effect 10 times more bacteria than human. We have about 100 trillion bacteria in the gut, but 10 trillion human cells, depending on the study that you look at, the microbiome, you know, a little bit less or more. Uh, but for anybody, we are a lot more bacteria than human. Whereas most foods feed only 10% of your cells, fermentable fibers and resistant starches feed the other 90%. There are hundreds of different species of bacteria in your intestine. And in the past decades, researchers are really looking at how bacterial diversity is really associated with robust health. So people that have GI issues, people that have chronic constipation, people that have lack of bacterial diversity, people that have other inflammatory problems, we work on healing their gut. Part of healing their gut is to bring resistant starches into their diet, starting off low and slow. Anybody that's out there that's a super biohacking health nerd that's been playing around with some resistant starches will tell you, you don't want to go from nothing to lots of this stuff overnight because it can really cause GI upset, bloating, things like that. Now, look, if your body is not tolerating even small amounts of resistant starches, it's probably a sign that you have some dysbiosis or bacterial overgrowth, or more specifically and pointedly, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. So I would recommend at that point looking at some microbiome labs, running a SIBO breath test and measuring hydrogen and methane, um, different types of SIBO that we would quantify on labs because you have to heal your gut and heal your SIBO, your bacterial overgrowth, to be able to tolerate these foods. It's not necessarily these foods' fault. It's your gut microbiome overgrowth that's over-consuming these fibers, releasing the gases, and causing these unwanted digestive symptoms like IBS and bloating. So good thing to consider. Start off low and slow. Bring whole foods into your diet. And if you have a problem, then I would rule out something like SIBO. Great question. Thanks again for listening to The Art of Being Well. 
If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit follow and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to drwillcole.com slash podcast. I'll be back every Monday and Thursday, and I hope you will too. Talk soon.